Well, are you glad to be here this morning? I don't know where Phoebe is. Uh, Phoebe, where are you at? Oh, God bless you, hon. Give her a round of applause. Most important thing you ever do is give your life to Jesus. We are in John's Gospel still. We're in chapter 11. And we've been in chapter 11 for a lengthy period of time. And we'll finish it up today. We're going to look at who is in control here. Who is in control here. Now, I think we all like to be in control, don't we? We all want control. That's part of who we are. How many of you have ever gotten on an elevator, pushed your floor button, and then tried to push the close button? Just raise your hand. You know what? That button doesn't work. The ADA, the American Disabilities Act of 1990, put that in that it wouldn't work unless you are a firefighter and have the key, and then it works. So next time you get on that elevator and you push that close button, it's not going to close any faster. But it does make you feel better because you feel that you are somewhat in control. Uh, Harvard psychologist Ellen Langer said this, The reason we press the non-functioning button is perceived control is very important. And I thought, that is absolutely true. Uh, Well, think about control. Who in your household controls the remote? (laughs) We like control. We like to be in control. But the fact of the matter is, ultimately... God is in control. And we need to recognize that fact that He is in control. When Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb in John chapter 11, where Lazarus had been dead for four days, what an incredible, amazing miracle that was. And you would think that everyone there that day would believe that Jesus was God. But some of the Jews were still skeptical. And we're going to read about that today. If you'll stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God, we're going to start in verse number 45 and read down through the rest of the chapter. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But Some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not 
for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today so grateful that you are in control and that, Father, you understand our needs. Lord, you live that we might live. And you gave your life that we could live eternally with you. And, Father, we believe. We believe in the power for salvation. We believe in the power for resurrection. We believe in the power that's the greatest power that's ever been known. And that is the power of your spoken word. And Father, today as we read your word, Lord, we recognize the fact that there is power. And we recognize also, Lord, you are truly in control. And for that, we are eternally grateful. So help us to recognize that today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I want you to look at verse 47 through 50. And I want to read that again real quick. Because it says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? That was the Sanhedrin. For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient that for us that one man should die for the, na- for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. It was from that day on they began plotting to take the life of Jesus. And Caiaphas was behind that. And they openly sought him among the Jews. And their whole desire was to take Jesus' life. But Jesus went to a town called Ephraim and he stayed there with his disciples in verse 55 and 56. And it talks about the Passover was nearing. And we know as we read John's gospel, the Passover is coming very soon. And they sought to arrest him and put him on trial. So this was a very political and religious crisis that was going on at the time. And as you think about that, it reminds us of the political and religious crisis that we have in our nation today. I mean, not much has changed when we really consider how things are. So I want you to notice a couple of things. Three ways to react to a crisis. And the first way that we react, that we react to a crisis is, I think, it's probably the most common. And it's anxiety. 
it's out of control. And we have this great anxiety. I don't know what to do. And the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 religious officials. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these two religious groups were always at one another's throat. The Pharisees were very conservative. The Sadducees were very liberal. And the Sadducees uh, (laughs) and the Pharisees, like the Democrats and the Republicans, fought constantly. Can you imagine how it was, and they were fighting back and forth and back and forth. And the one thing that they could come together on was this, the Never Jesus movement. We want rid of Jesus. And these two groups came together for that purpose, to take his life. They were very anxious. They were afraid the Romans were going to come and overthrow them. They would be out of power. Now... The Pharisees were always anti-Roman. The Sadducees were Roman positive. They loved the Romans in a way. They dressed like the Romans. And they wanted the power and the authority that the Romans would give them. And the worst case scenario was that they would lose that power because With power comes money. And they were a wealthy group. And they knew if they they lost control, they would lose control of their money as well. So they were filled with anxiety. Now, when we are faced with a crisis, what do we do? We often default to the worst case scenario, don't we? Oh, this is bad. This is bad and it's only going to get worse. We watch the news and we say, oh, we're in such a sad, terrible place and it's only going to get worse. And we look at the stock market and the stock market's dropping and we say, oh, we're going to lose our wealth. Our portfolio is going down. Or we look at the, the, the political scene and we say, oh, my goodness, we we're just we're in a sad situation, or or we watch the religious system and we say, you know what? There are fewer Christians for the first time in America than there are than there are not uh, there are non-believers, and 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 we say, oh my goodness, the church is dying. The church is dying, and, and we get anxious, and we feel like we don't have control. And that's the way the religious leaders were feeling with this movement of Jesus. But Paul wrote these words from prison in the book of Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. He said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's what happens when we do that. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So when a crisis comes, don't let anxiety take over and say it's, we're, we're just out of control. Recognize the fact that God is in control. But there's a second thing that happens when a crisis comes, and that is this, arrogance. I'm in control. 
I'm in control. How many times have you thought, you know, I'm in control of this? That's kind of the way Caiaphas felt. Caiaphas was the high priest. And the high priest, guess what? At the time of the Romans, it went to the highest bidder. And for 18 years, Caiaphas was the high priest. And Caiaphas was arrogant. I'm in control. I'm going to take out Jesus. And uh, the Romans are going to continue to to give me the authority that I need. And uh, it seems like if we think about that today, and you look at the wealth of those who are in Congress and the Senate, it's absolutely astounding the amount of money they have made. Caiaphas was brutal. He was rich. He was the high priest for years and years. And then he passed it along to his son-in-law. He was a member of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in heaven. I mean, everything you had was here on earth. And the conservative Pharisees hated the Roman invaders. And Caiaphas was partners with the Romans. And he desired to continue keeping his power. He was kind of like the Jewish mafia godfather, if you will. And verse number 50, we read these words. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us, Caiaphas was saying, that one man should die for the people and... Not that the whole nation should perish. He's saying, you know, if we get rid of this rabble rouser Jesus, then everything will calm back down again and all will be fine. He thinks he's in control of his destiny. And you know, the book of James tells us, what is your life? It's like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's here for a short time and then it is gone. And Caiaphas felt, I'm in control. But in fact, the, ma- the fact of the matter is, guess what? We're not in control of anything, are we? We're not in control if our heart beats in the next minute. We're not in control if our lungs function one more time. We are not in control of what's going to happen the rest of the day. We're not in con- control of what's going to happen tomorrow. So we need to relinquish that authority and not have that arrogance and say, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do this. There is an element in society that is so enraged. And when you say something like this, my thoughts and my prayers go out to you. When there's a mass shooting or, or there's something that's, that's really not explainable, a natural disaster... You have those people who make those signs that say, thoughts and prayers don't stop bullets. Thoughts and prayers don't stop natural disasters. The problem is this. The problem isn't gun control. The problem is a problem of the heart. And Jeremiah 17, 9 Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. 
So we think we have control, and this arrogance leads us to believe that we can solve our problems. But I'm going to tell you, the only way to have our problems solved is by God. It's by turning our hearts back to Him again. And there is this widespread humanistic movement in America today that says we can solve our own problems with education. We don't need God. Well, I'm going to tell you, we're a pretty educated people and we haven't solved our problems, have we? Our problems seem to only get worse. You may remember the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh, before they put him to death, they asked him if he had any final words. And he said, yes. And he gave the final stanza to the poem Invictus, which says this, It matters not how straight the gate, nor how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. One moment after his execution, he learned this. He was not in control. God is in control. And we need to recognize that fact. We need to beware of having that arrogant attitude of, I'm in control. You know, nothing happens without God's knowledge. Not a sparrow falls to the ground. Not a hair of your head goes uncounted. He knows it all. The third thing is assurance. God is in control. God is in control. And that should be the reaction to any crisis that we have. God is in control. Assurance is better than insurance. With insurance, you're betting that something will go wrong. (laughs) And uh, you'll be covered. But with assurance, you know that whatever happens, God is in control and He has you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, guess what? Your rod and your staff go with me and you protect me. And I know that I'll come through the other side because you are with me and your presence is there. So when we have a personal crisis, so when we have a national crisis, or when we have a global crisis like we are having presently, know this, God is in control. One proof is found in John's explanation of that statement of Caiaphas, that arrogance about making one man die for the nation. In verse 51 and 52, this he did not say on his own authority. Guess whose authority it was? God. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Do you know what? When he died for the nation, he died for all of the world. And because he died for all of the world, we can be saved. And we can have that relationship with God. And we can be born into the family of God. And he died that we 
could experience life. The godfather of the Jewish mafia planned on snuffing out Jesus' life. Mino Caiaphas was basically saying this, that Jesus would die instead of the nation. But God turned it around to mean that Jesus would die for the nation. And not just for the nation, but for the entire world. What a powerful truth that is. That he gave his life for us. What an awesome God we serve. Who loves us so much that he was willing to give up his own son. Many scriptures tell us. That God's in control. 1 Corinthians 29, 11, and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make, a, make it great and to give strength to all. Wow. So what does that mean? Well, let's see two areas where God is in control. And then I'm going to show you one area that man's in control. God's in control of creation. You know, we hear of evolution in billions and billions of years. But God is in control of the universe. He spoke it into existence. He's in control over all creation. As intelligent creatures, we study the universe, we study matter. But one question that scientists have never been able to truly answer is this. What holds it all together? What holds all of this together? Why doesn't it just fly apart? But you know the Bible answers that question. In Colossians chapter 1, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. You know why the world doesn't fly apart? Because he holds it together. Listen, not only can he hold the world together, He can hold your life together. And He desires to. He begs us to trust Him. Secondly, God controls circumstances. We have a tendency to think that, uh, well, that's, that's just a circumstance. Rob, we studied Joseph for a number of weeks. And Joseph had a lot of circumstances in his life that uh, seemed to be, well, out of his control. 
His brothers hated him. His father loved him. His brothers sold him into slavery. He went down to Egypt. He was accused of having an adultery, and he did not do that. He was thrown in the pit. He was in prison for 13 years. And all of these situations were working for one particular reason. And then he was brought out of prison and prophesied what the king or the Pharaoh, his dream. And God put him in control. He was second chariot. And the, the, the word of God said, and after his father passed away, his brothers were concerned. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, it said, But as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. So listen to me. When you think you're going through something really, 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 really bad, God has a purpose. And God will work it out. And what we need to do is simply say, Lord, you are the potter and I am the clay and I'm willing to stay on the wheel. It's painful to be moved. It's painful to be shaped. But God, whatever your will is, you move, you mold, you shape me into the vessel of honor to be used for you. And then the Bible says in Isaiah, remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. Things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God controls circumstances. The word coincidence is not in God's vocabulary. God is sitting behind the steering wheel of history. But there's one thing that God doesn't control, and that's our choices. You know, one of the great questions of Christianity is whether or not man has free will. John eleven forty five. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. We see people coming with their own free will, giving their life to Christ. And some of the people who saw Lazarus raised from the dead that day, they made a different decision. They went to the high priest. They didn't follow Jesus. In fact, God gives us a choice to worship him. God gives us the choice. Before Joshua died in the Old Testament, he made this statement. In Joshua 24, 15, he said, And if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But this last piece of 45, but as for me and my house, we will 
serve the Lord. That's by our front door. We will serve the Lord. God created Adam and Eve to live in a perfect garden, but he didn't make them robots where they couldn't choose, and they chose to sin. God even used Caiaphas, the high priest, to speak his truth. God controls, but God gives us the freedom to choose. Even the Old Testament, you think of the evil king Nebuchadnezzar over the Babylonian Empire. God used him for his own purpose to accomplish his own will. So, in conclusion, we need to let God be God. And we need to say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. I want to make you a promise. If you will do that, your life will be so much better. And your happiness level, that joy that Jesus gives. So the question really is, What will I do with Jesus? Because every one of us have to choose. So let's bow. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is in control. Thank you, Father, for the perfect gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a freedom to choose to love you. And Father, I'm so grateful for those that we've seen that have come to know you and to identify with you in believer's baptism. And Father, I pray today that whatever your will is for each life here, that it would be accomplished for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.